Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sony Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There's no offseason here. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this outside on a beautiful, sunny, clear, not too hot, not too cold day in Pasadena, California. It is ideal weather to play a baseball game. Absolutely picture perfect baseball weather here in Pasadena. You know, really just right down the 110 from Dodger Stadium. Dodgers are not in town. They're in San Diego. And so you're, you know, you're doubling up on some teams that either play in domes or play in nice outdoor conditions. Meanwhile, you have a bunch of other games have been rained out. It's going to be ridiculous how many double headers we're going to have. It really is. It's going to be truly ridiculous. And it's going to affect some of the pennant races. If you're going to have some critical games, and yes, I do believe there are critical games no matter what the month is. If you're going to have some critical games where you're basically playing your B squad, because you're playing a you know day-night doubleheader or a true doubleheader or whatever, you'll get a couple of losses along the way that you wouldn't normally have. And it also is going to go to the fact that I believe one of those seemingly unbreakable records, you know, there are a few marks in baseball history which are seemingly unbreakable. Uh, one of them will fall. I'm telling you, one of them will fall, and that will be Johnny Vandermeer's two straight no-hitters. In consecutive starts, Johnny Vandermeer of the Cincinnati Reds threw a no-hitter in consecutive starts. And the reason I say that is because the second of his two no-hitters was a fluke. He was playing, if it wasn't the first night game, it was like the second night game ever at Ebbets Field. And the batters were not used to seeing the ball at night. And he had an incredible advantage. And because of that, he wound up throwing a no-hitter. Because they couldn't, they couldn't see the, the ball. They didn't know how to play at night yet. And I'm guessing the lighting wasn't that great. And so that second no-hitter, you kind of have to look out with your head slightly ensconced and go like, eh, all right, all right. Well, I believe at one point you're going to see a guy throw a no-hitter and then pitch the second half of one of these doubleheaders where he's not exactly facing uh, the varsity squad, and he'll get a no-hitter there. I remember Eric Milton of Minnesota uh, pitched a game which for some reason in Minnesota they had to play it ridiculously early. Maybe they were, uh, this was back when they were playing in the Metrodome, maybe they were sharing it with the Vikings, or there was some reason they had to play a game and against the Angels at a ridiculous time, and the manager of the Angels decided to rest his regulars and basically played his bench, and Eric Milton threw a no-hitter. And it's a no-hitter. Pitched nine innings, didn't let up a hit. But it was, uh, it was bound to happen. So I, I believe at one point you're going to see, if you see someone throw a no-hitter, and we saw Bartolo Colon throw you know, a perfect game into the eighth last night, let up a hit finally. 
Uh, didn't get the win, but you know he, he earned the, the wob on who owns baseball. You will see that record fall, and I think a r- reason will be is because there will be a fluke game where someone says, look, we've used all our regulars here. We can't start everyone here. And that team will just be flummoxed by a pitcher. And I, I think that it, it will take a fluke in order to match with that. And I think all these double headers that you're going to see sprinkled throughout the year will cause a certain amount of, that will up the ante, up the, the possibility of a fluke. It's going to truly affect the American League Central. I mean, at this point right now, as I'm recording this, the Minnesota Twins have only played 11 games total. You know, the, the, the Indians and the White Sox and the Tigers and the Royals have all experienced a tremendous number of rainouts. And now, this is a division that I picked the Cleveland Indians to win, and I thought the Minnesota Twins were going to give them fits. But if this division really comes down to a few games, and, you know, it's too early to look at the standings on when everyone's all bunched together because, you know, at one point last year there was all the standings were all bunched together, then the Indians put on the aft thrusters and won the division handily. And Minnesota wound up clinching a spot on the last weekend of the season. But, I mean, like, when you look up and say, hey, look at that, the uh, White Sox are only... Uh, three and a half games out of first place. Yeah, they're not going to win this year. Okay? But when you start to see if the division really comes down to Minnesota and Cleveland, and it comes down to just a few games, I wonder, it'd be, it would be interesting to look back at their records in the doubleheaders and see how it affects. In fact, forget looking, looking back. I'm going to keep a close tabs on it as they're happening. What is their record in the doubleheaders? Because it's hard to win a doubleheader, to win both games. Most of the times you see a doubleheader, at least I feel this way. I'm going to really, really keep track of this this year. I don't think I won't. You get the sense that most of the times you split a doubleheader. Just, you know, it's hard to win both games of a doubleheader. And seeing this division is going to be loaded with them, it seems to me that the importance of winning that first game of the doubleheader is going to be off the charts. Because then you're playing with house money with the second game. And what would that mean if the division is super tight between Minnesota and Cleveland? And what would that mean if either the Royals, the White Sox, or the Tigers make a surprise run. You know, if a team doesn't run away with it, is it going to be because of all these doubleheaders that are piling up and piling up and piling up? I still think Cleveland is the most talented team in the division. I also think Minnesota, who has a three-game winning streak but is playing, are hiccuping throughout the season so far because they haven't been able to, you know, they haven't been able to sustain a series. Uh, I think it's there's been no rhythm yet of what the what it feels like to be in that division so far. I know it's early. We're only halfway through the first month, and I really think the first checkpoint. And, I, and I've remained consistent about this. 
that the first real checkpoint of the series of the season is at the end of the May and the beginning of June, when you reach the first third of the season, round roughly Memorial Day. Get to Memorial Day and see what you are. And that's when you have to make the decision. The first set of decisions being, are we a contender and should we try to improve the team? Or are we a non-contender and should we put two sticks of dynamite in this team and blow it up? I think it's too early to be safe for most of the teams. There are a couple of exceptions who may already be looking around investing in dynamite. But nobody in that central, not even the Royals who started this season 3-10 and are currently on a five-game losing streak. Just because the division is going to be so hiccupy and so bunched together, at least early on, that you can't quite give up on them. Now, I know it's early, as I said, we're in mid-April. But there are possibilities for big games. I've made this point before, but it's worth making again. For some teams, there are big games. For some teams, it is important to get a win here or there for the psyche of the club and for the momentum of the club. Now, last night, uh, Clayton Kershaw pitched brilliantly and won a game against the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, one thing I wish announcers would stop saying, I wish they would stop saying that the Arizona Diamondbacks had an 11-game winning streak against the L.A. Dodgers. That's true for the regular season. But the Dodgers swept the Arizona Diamondbacks in the playoffs last year. And I know a few Diamondbacks fans. And let me ask you, which would you rather have? An 11-game winning streak in the regular season or a three-game sweep in the postseason? You know, we judge the value of a team of how they do in the postseason. And if the Diamondbacks had played that way in the postseason, forget getting to Game 7 of the World Series against Houston, the Dodgers would have been three and out and totally forgotten as a playoff team. The fact of the matter is this. The Dodgers won the games when they needed to win them last October, and they won rather decisively. Some of the games were close, to be sure, but the Dodgers jumped on them right from the start. And so it was an important game, especially because the Dodgers are off to a clunky, clunky start. They're five and nine. They are five and a, they are five games back in the loss column of Arizona. The only other teams with a worse record in the National League are the Marlins and the Reds. Let me get to the Reds in a second. So maybe psychologically, it was important to win the game like that. But the Dodgers have so much talent that you get the sense that, you know what, they're going to win a bunch of games. And it's a point I made before. I could think of three games off the top of my head where a bounce here or a bounce there, they would have won. Then then their record would be eight and six, and no one would be panicking. The talent is there. Absolutely the talent is there. They're going to win some of those games. Turner will eventually be back they'll start to get some of those bounces going their way. They're just, I, I attribute some of this to luck at this point. Um, it is a big game for the New York Mets. The Mets are playing the Washington Nationals this week, uh, later this afternoon, actually. The Mets are off to the best, they're, they're the best team in the National League right now in terms of their winning percentage. 
They only trail my beloved Boston Red Sox by a handful of winning percentages. The Red Sox are 13-2, and and the uh, Mets are 12-2. and The Red Sox, sadly, their Patriots Day game was rained out. I was hoping to have that while eating my breakfast this morning. The Mets, this is a more important series for the Mets than the Nationals. The Nationals are off to a somewhat sluggish start. They're starting off the season 7-9, and nine, but I put the Nats in a similar uh, basket as the L.A. Dodgers. It's funny, all the teams that were considered to be the slam dunks to win their division titles, the Nationals, the Cubs, and the Dodgers are all off to sluggish starts. Let the record show I did not pick the Cubs to win the NL Central. I picked the Milwaukee Brewers. It is important if you are a surprise team, to keep that momentum going. It is important to build up as many wins early on. When you're a team that people say, hmm, this team could go either way, to keep that pressure going. To not have it be just a fluke start, but to have it say, hey, build an entire solid month of which you can eventually absorb a losing streak or two. But as I said before, this is a very important series for the Mets, probably more so than for the Nationals, because of these head-to-head games. The Mets swept the Washington Nationals earlier this year. Hell, they've only lost two games. Now, do I think that they're going to sweep them in New York? I don't know about that, but if they win the series, just win the series, that would give them a record of 14 and 3. And that would give the Nats a record of 8 and 11. Now think about that for a second. To be um what is it? 8 games up in the loss column in April. More than a week ahead of them at this point. Plenty of time to catch up. But you want, if you're a team like the Mets, to create a foundation or say, okay, you have to make up a week of games in order to catch us at this point, that if you could build upon that, then you can start to say, all right, when that first losing streak hits, and it will, and the first big winning streak hits for the Washington Nationals, and it will, you may be able to absorb that and still have a lead, and still have it be a race for the East instead of Washington running away with it. It sounds counterintuitive in such a long marathon, but there are these checkpoints. The Mets have Syndergaard. They have, they're throwing DeGrom today. They're showing, you know, Zach Wheeler coming out of nowhere to pitch well. They are getting good production from players. The Mets are a kind of team... When we went into the season, people, including me, said everything has to go right and they have a chance to win. Well, so far, everything's been going right. And to have the New York Mets take their flag, stick it in the ground and say, hey, wait a minute. We're a big market team. We've got some, you know, we've got some marquee players on this club. And we've got some exciting players on this team. We should be looked upon as a contender. 
And, you know, 2015, they were in the World Series. 2016, they were a wildcard team. Last year, the team fell apart. But it's not outrageous to think that the talent that's here could all fix and, and fold together in the correct way. You've taken away the whole Terry Collins nonsense. You know, maybe, just maybe, a series, a win against Washington could lead to building upon the surprise start. Now, I, it's funny because part of me would really like to see Washington win the World Series. Friend of the podcast, Sean Doolittle, is on that team. And part of me would like to see the Mets be really competitive because, do you know what? I think baseball is more interesting when it's interesting in New York City. And it's really interesting when both teams in New York and uh, city are interesting. Now, this is just coming from a pure baseball point of view. Of course, as a Red Sox fan, I would love to see the Yankees have a 120-loss season, but that's not going to happen. And even though the Yankees have started the season a sluggish 7-7, seven and seven, you know and I know that they're not going away. But this is a big series for the Mets to build upon this, to build the foundation. You know, if you have a really good April and a really good May, then guess what? That's a third of a season that you're really good. And you can look upon that, that first checkpoint and say, wait a minute, we're winning a lot of games and we have a substantial lead over the Nationals. Maybe we should try to fill in whatever holes we have and make a run at it. It's a big game. These head-to-head -head games are the foundation of surprise season. And, you know, when you have a team that jumps out of the gate early better than you're expecting, like the Pittsburgh Pirates, for example, after the Pirates traded away Garrett Cole and Andrew McCutcheon, I think everyone in the world thought they were going to stink this year. Now they've won 11 of their first 15 games. And they've won some of them against some tough competition like the Chicago Cubs. Are they a surprise team? Or are they a team that's jumping out to a fast start that will probably fall back to the pack? I have a feeling that's what the Pirates are. Every year there's always a team that starts off, wow, look at how they're going. And then they fade back at the end of the year. Because, well, remember they started the year well? Yeah, they, they went up with a losing season. I like the Pirates. I would love to see the Pirates be, I'd like to see them win the division, quite frankly. I just don't see that. I think they're a team that's just starting off fast and will probably fall back. But do you know what? The fact that they started off fast gives fans and gives the team a moment to perk up and say, hey, wait a minute, are we going to do something this year? I don't know. And it makes the season a little more interesting to start off with. Because as I said before, sometimes those pretenders turn into contenders. Sometimes those teams hang on and find themselves playing in October, or in the case of the 2008 Tampa Bay Rays, all the way to the World Series. Which leads us to the Reds. Man, the Reds. The Reds should really be not only a good team, but a phenomenal fan base. The Reds should be one of those special baseball teams with its history going all the way back to the 19th century, with the link to the original professional team being in Cincinnati. I know it's not the same franchise, the first professional team and the current Cincinnati Reds, but Emotionally, there's an attachment and there's a connection to the big red machine 
and some of the great players on there. And this was a team that got to within one swing of getting to the National League Championship Series in 2012. One swing of the bat, and they're playing in the NLCS against the St. Louis Cardinals. And they probably would have beaten the Cardinals head-to-head, and who knows what they would have done against the Detroit Tigers. This is a team that got you know, to the wild card game and a game here or a game there in 2013, and they would have been the host of the wild card game, and who knows what would have happened then. But instead, they're a team that is in an absolute state of disarray right now. Oh, they've got a lot of young players on their team, to be sure. To be sure. And you take a look at the, you know, the Luis Castillos and the Sal Romanos and the Brandon Finnegans. There's some young arms on that team. And Raciel Iglesias is pitching well out of the bullpen. Homer Bailey is still there, still, you know, pitching well. But this team stinks. This team, they have a Hall of Famer, an absolute Hall of Famer in Joey Votto, who is being wasted on this roster. Absolutely wasted. Surrounded by the Billy Hamilton, who's fun as hell to watch, or the Adam Duval, who had a nice game the other day. But seriously, this team's brutal to watch. Absolutely brutal. And their record, sometimes you are what your record is. And they're 2-13. and 13. And who the hell are they playing today? They are playing, I'm going to actually go to the MLB app. I forgot who they're playing today. They're playing the Brewers. The Brewers are a good team. The Brewers are probably going to beat the snot out of them. And they went from being a perennial contender under Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker's gone. Brian Price took over in 2014. That's 2014. He lost 80 some odd games. 2015, he won 90, he lost 90 something games. 2016 and 2017, 90 something games. That's a presidential term. Where his 86 loss season was the high point. And they're consistently a 90 something team. And this year, they look like they're a 100 loss team. You know, this is the difference between the Pirates and the Reds. There was no expectation for the Pirates. There's no expectations for the Reds. And the Pirates got off to an interesting start. So if you're a Pirate fan, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Huh? Huh? And probably by June or July, like, ah, well, it was fun for a little bit. For the Reds, it's like, man, we're going to stink, and we're going to stink something special. It's mid-April, and if you're a Red fan... You know, there's no chance for your team, even with the Cubs stumbling out. Even when you look around, like, man, the Cubs aren't off to a great start, and the leader is the Pirates will probably come crashing back to earth eventually. doesn't matter. Your team stinks. And they're going to have to do something. It'll probably mean, you know, Brian Price's name is being thrown around as a potential manager to fire. I think that of the managers out there, the ones who have to have the the... the look around and one of the nooses around them. Uh, I think Don Mattingly, just because anytime there's new ownership and there is new ownership, there's disastrous new ownership for the Marlins. Um, and Derek Jeter has shown that he's not a very, uh, uh, let's just say he's not a very sentimental fella, even with the Yankee ties to Don Mattingly. You know, something will happen. I think Don Mattingly will be fired and they'll bring in 
you know, he'll bring in like Jorge Posada or some other member of the Yankees to be the manager. Um, I think that, um, who else is in trouble? You know, I personally think Mike Matheny's in trouble. I think this four-game winning streak notwithstanding, I think the fact that the Cardinals are a team that should be a playoff participant every single year, and they haven't been for the last couple of seasons, and have basically conceded the division to the Chicago Cubs. And I, quite frankly, I think Matheny is a pretty terrible in-game manager. I think he, he's on the hot seat big time. But I think Brian Price is kind of day-to-day at this point. Now, I, I said this in the podcast last year. I don't understand how Brian Price still has a job. I mean, obviously, this isn't his fault entirely. But what about him do you look at and go like, okay, we're here because we want him to babysit the team? I mean, uh, to me, when I look at someone like him, is he's, he's now in his fifth year as the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. What, what is keeping him employed? What, what is keeping him on the job? You know, is he is he a great leader of men? Is he a great? Is he uh, the the favorite of the clubhouse? I don't get it. the The results are terrible. The team is terrible out of the gate, and when you watch them, they just don't they don't look like a cohesive team. And as I've pointed out, I believe that he's misusing Joey Votto, who I think should be the best leadoff man in baseball. And maybe, just maybe, a new manager can. I don't know, spark something? I mean, there are rumors that it might be Barry Larkin. All right, I mean, that would be a fan favorite move. You know, hometown kid, World Series champion, MVP, Hall of Famer, you know. But is anyone going to pay tickets to say, hey, I want to watch Barry Larkin bring up the lineup card? You know, we need that winner that represents the glory days. And maybe something like that works. I mean, Paul Molitor has worked a hell of a lot better than I thought he would for Minnesota. Maybe it would maybe something like that will shake up the team or spark up the team or something like that. Maybe they'll bring up a lot of their young kids, and the Reds have done some smart things on some of their trades and, and trying to get younger. But, but the thing I wonder is this. I mean, if, if Price is on the hot seat, it, it, on the one hand, you're like, if he, if he was this close to getting fired, where it's being, you know, you're looked at in the middle of April, then why break camp with him? Seriously, why, why not just, I was saying this last year, if he's not your guy, then bring in someone who's your guy. I mean, I'm not advocating for anyone to lose their job, but if they're not doing the job, or if he's not the person, the right person for the job, then, then bring someone else in. You know, but the other hand is, if you think you need to make a change, then why wait? Seriously, the wise, you know, sometimes you know. So, I mean, I made the call to fire Bobby Valentine in April when he was with the Red Sox. I said, you know, this is clearly not going to work. And I was right. They should have fired him then. It was a disaster the rest of the way. Now, the question I have is if I were the Cincinnati Reds, I would reach out to Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi, and if I were the St. Louis Cardinals, I'd do the same thing. Joe Girardi is a wonderful manager. You know, he's had success with the Yankees. He won the manager of the year with the Marlins. And I wonder if he would, you know, 
out of the scrutiny, the, 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 the bubble of being in New York, I bet he would really love managing a Midwestern team. He's a Midwestern guy. He's not going to manage the Cubs anytime soon. It looks like the White Sox are happy with Rick Renteria. So if he manages the St. Louis Cardinals or manages the Cincinnati Reds, that seems like a natural fit. And to have a manager who's like, yeah, this guy's won the World Series. This guy's managed in World, World Series teams and has done, you know, let's face it, took an understaffed Yankee team to the seventh game of the American League Championship Series last year before he was, I thought, kind of unceremoniously dumped. I thought he did a fine job as manager. If I were the Reds or the Cardinals, I'd say, hey, wait a minute. We have a guy like this who, if he puts together a nice run in Cincy or a nice run in St. Louis, including a pennant and maybe a title, that's a manager you may talk about as a potential Hall of Fame manager. So why would you stick with Mike Matheny, who's been there for, geez, I mean, how many years? He's been there for seven years. Or... Price, who's clearly not cutting it anymore, when you can bring in Girardi and say, hey, look, we'll build a team, we'll build a winner around you. And give a message to your players and say, hey, this is the direction we're going with. We're gonna, this manager doesn't sign if he, if he doesn't think he has a chance to win. So, I don't get it. I don't get why Price started this year with a team, but it's clearly not working. And if they keep him around it's for the you know, the, the, what is it, the, the sunk cost fallacy. Like, well, he's already been here. We've already had him here for this long. Better keep using him. That's a logical fallacy. Make the change, Reds. Ask Girardi. Call him. Say, hey, how do you like to be a manager of a major league team? I think that the bringing in Barry Larkin would be similar to when the White Sox brought in Robin Ventura which was a whole, hey, you liked him as a player, now like him as a manager. And I don't always think that works, especially when you have a former manager of the year with a World Series ring and a lot of postseason experience who's dealt with a lot of crapola in his life, you know, professionally, the way that Joe Girardi has. Do you know what? Put him in Cincinnati and say, do you know what? We're not going to win next year. But we have a direction, at least we have a leader who's been there, who has done that, and actually nearly put together a wildcard team with a, what, a $16 million payroll in Florida back in 2006. I'd be all over Joe Girardi if I were uh, Cincinnati Reds. And if the cost of that is, well, you have to say goodbye to Brian Price, well, Brian Price is not going to make anyone forget about Sparky Anderson anytime soon. Sometimes you've got to make these decisions when they are there. And that's my point. My point with the Reds. You have not got off to the surprising start. You are not building upon something. You're going to be a massive pile of suck this year. So why not hand over the reins to someone who might be able to take you in the right direction. And with that in mind, go to sullybaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, serve in iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. You can be old school, send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. Music is by Ted Thacker, Patrick Kaliski. And a beautiful day for baseball, so naturally no games are being played in L.A. This has been Sully Baseball for the 16th day of April 20, 2018. Ah!
I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.